This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. It is Q&A time. We have some good-ass questions today, so let's go ahead and get right into it. All right, first question. Some exercises have you pause in the shortened position and some in the lengthened. Is it best to mix it or do some muscles lend themselves better to one or the other? All right, so to clear this up a little bit, first and foremost, if we look at like a muscle in the lengthened versus shortened position. So basically, if we look at, for example, a chest fly, a dumbbell chest fly at the bottom of the movement, arms are way out from your sides. You're feeling a big stretch in your chest. There, we're really training the muscle in the lengthened position. Whereas, if we train like a cable chest fly, the hardest portion of the movement is at the front of the movement when our hands are nearly touching and we're, you're really gonna feel a big contraction in your pec. So, and really, this idea of like, lengthen, shorten, and then mid-range, like where we are training the muscle. If you really want more clarity on this, I would go back and listen to the episode I did with CJ Moxley of N1 Training and Education. Now, when I'm programming for online clients, I do consider, hey, we want to make sure we're hitting something in the mid-range and then we're hitting something lengthened and or shortened. But really, a lot of this is just intuitive. For example, if we are programming a lower body day for a client, um, then like one client I can think of, I just get on programming for a shout out to Rachel. Okay. We programmed a squat and then, okay, we want another movement to hit the quads. We know the squat's going to overload the mid range and kind of the lengthened position at the bottom where we have more of a stretch on the quads. So then it makes sense to like with our next movement, we wouldn't just do another, um, like squat variation. We would do leg extension or something like that that's going to overload the muscle in the shortened position so intuitively most people program like this <clears throat> but when we're talking about okay exercises have a pause in the shortened position and others in the lengthened so really where we implement typically most movements are going to have a position where it is overloaded the most so again the easy example of this is those two chest fly variations a dumbbell chest fly is going to be most challenging at the bottom of the movement when the arms are furthest away from your torso so there like if we're trying to create more overload create more muscular tension it makes sense that that's where we would pause where the movement is the hardest to create more overload. Whereas if we paused at the top of a dumbbell chest fly, we wouldn't get as much out of it. We, we really wouldn't get very much out of it at all because there's very minimal tension on the muscle. On the flip side, if we're looking at like a cable chest fly, we would likely pause at the front of that movement because again, that's where we're really overloading the muscle group the most, really squeeze and then go through the rest of the motion. So. Typically, when we're going to be implementing a pause in a movement, it's going to be in the position where we've overloaded that specific muscle the most. So, of course, this does vary by muscle group, but really you can just feel like, hey, where does the movement feel the hardest? And that's typically where we would implement a pause. Another good example of this would be squats. Like 
we don't pause at the top of a squat. We don't pause halfway up from a squat. You pause in the hole for two to three seconds if you're doing pause squats and then come back up. Um, and really, I don't program pauses a whole lot. I would rather the client really just focus on a slow controlled negative for typically two to four seconds than being explosive on the way up. But if you do want to implement pauses, that's the way that I would go about it. Next question we have. My clients don't do a great job getting back to me answering the questions I throw at them for check-ins. Anything you do in that case other than follow up. All right, so absolutely. This is all about the way you ask questions honestly. And for coaches that do like video responses versus email responses, this is one of, I go back and forth. Um, I've gone back and forth with like, hey, sometimes I think it makes more sense to use like a Loom video as a response to an online client. Whereas sometimes I think it makes more sense to like type out a response. And this is really why the majority of my online client responses are still going to be written emails because it is a lot easier to get people to get back to you to take specific action steps. But really how I go about this is just getting hyper specific. If there's something that we know we've identified the client needs to take action on, getting hyper specific on what the next steps are. I think one mistake that many, many coaches make is just, oh, you didn't hit your calories last week? Okay, um, try harder this week. Or like, try measuring your food more accurately this week. Or try implementing more protein this week. And here's even some sources you could implement, right? But when we throw things out there like that as coaches, unless we get hyper-specific on, okay, what specific action steps is the client going to take? When are these going to happen? And how we're going to hold them accountable to following through with these actions? Then that shit just kind of floats in the ether. And it's a lot less likely that clients will actually take action on them. So, and really this all comes down to so much of good coaching, so much of what we practice as coaches is communication. Like really, like this is the art of coaching. So let's say, for example, a client is struggling with protein. We could just ask like, hey, what do you need to do? to get your protein up. So, and typically this is how it would start. Um, kind of tying into some motivational interviewing or self-determination theory, most clients do want to um, feel like they have autonomy. So when someone comes up with something on their own, they're a lot more likely to follow through with it than if you tell them. So for example, if I tell you, yo, I want you to start adding in a Greek yogurt with breakfast and I want you to start adding a protein shake in the evening to hit your protein goal. You're a lot less likely to follow through with that than I ask you, hey, what do you think you could do to hit your protein goal? We know that for your body composition targets or for your body composition goals, getting adequate protein is crazy important. You're falling a bit under that mark right now. So this isn't conducive to your goals that you want to achieve. So to get the outcomes you want, you need this protein intake. So I have some ideas, but before I start troubleshooting, tell me what you think the best approach to get these protein targets up would be. <clears throat> now, if this is a client that historically, like I know isn't quite as good about getting back to me, I'll put a date on the end of that. So let me know on this by tomorrow at noon Pacific Standard Time. If you don't get back to me by then, I'm gonna follow up with you. And then of course, set a reminder on your calendar to follow up with them. But put it, first and foremost, like putting a date on it like that really helps. Secondly, 
Um, if we're kind of troubleshooting back and forth like this, or let's say like a week goes on and there's still no solution to the protein issue. So first and foremost, we always want to give clients a chance to have some autonomy to come up with this on their own, because again, then they're a lot more likely to follow through. So from there, if we still haven't heard back from the client, then the next week's check-in would be something like, yo, still the protein is a problem. So looking through your food diary and from what I know you like, here are a couple different protein sources you could add in. So if we look at breakfast, we see that breakfast is typically your meal lowest on protein. So again, we could add like some Greek yogurt here. We could add some cottage cheese. We could add some egg whites to your eggs. Dinner is your second lowest meal on protein. We could add in, again, you could have a protein shake as a snack. You could add in a larger serving of steak. I know you usually eat like a steak or chicken breast, so we could increase the serving size of that. Or we could add like a tuna salad on the side. All right, so from all of these options I gave you, let me know which two options specifically you're gonna take action on. From there, let me know when you'll have these ingredients, and then I'm gonna hold you accountable to this by checking in every other day to make sure that you're hitting this in your tracker. Or you can even ask, how would you like to be held accountable to this? But from there, once again, we're getting super specific on what action steps they're taking, when they're taking them, and how they're gonna be held accountable to them. And that's so much more effective than like, hey, we need to do better at this this week, or hey, like try to get your protein up this week. And I really, I think that's a big part of what sets our coaching service apart. Also, it's very important to set um, expectations right from the start with the client. I tell any new client on the initial call before clients even sign up, look, communication is a huge piece of this. And the reality is this is a very high touch point service. If you just want a coach that you check in with once a month, we're not going to be a good fit. I require you to communicate with me a lot. If you're not willing to do that, once again, you're just not a good fit for the service. So can you do that? Yes or no? So right out of the gate, I've set the expectation. I'm like, hey, I expect you to be a very good communicator. But also, I would say if clients aren't getting back to you, you're probably not either one, communicating your questions clearly enough. So if you're like doing video responses, I would like, even if you continue to do the video responses, like type, hey, these are the main things I need you to get back to me on. Just make quick bullet points. Get back to me on these by this time and this date. And two, make sure that you're really illustrating to your clients why getting back to you on those specific things ties into their goals. Just like we talked about, like, hey, you're not hitting your protein goal. And thus, this is really going to hold you back from achieving your goal body composition in the time frame that we've established. Because I know you don't want that to happen. What are some specific things? What are two specific things you think you can do to hit this protein target this week? And again, like the more specific we can get, that's why I love like, what are two specific things you can do? What's the one biggest thing you can change? Questions like that are so much more likely to get a detailed response from like the more detailed your question is the more detailed the response will be whereas like if we just ask hey what can you do to get more protein or like hey how can you get protein up we're not going to get as nearly of a we're not going to get nearly as specific of a response and the client is less likely to actually take action on it but for all you coaches out there hopefully that is helpful speaking of coaching i wanted to remind you all of our online coaching service Everything we do is extremely customized to you as an individual. What we do is take all this information, everything you hear on our podcast, everything you read in the blogs and see on our social media posts, we take all that information 
and actually teach you how to apply it to real world settings, to apply it to yourself as an individual. We create science-based nutrition and training protocols built specifically for you, educate you on why and how they work, help you achieve your end result, and then teach you how to maintain that result on your own without us for the long term. So if you're struggling to achieve your goal body composition on your own, hit the link in the show notes to apply for online coaching with us. All right, enough shameless plugs. Let's get back to the show. All right, final question of the day. You see a lot of mixed information on training to failure. What is your take on how often it's okay to train to failure? All right, so like all things, it depends. First and foremost, it's going to depend on the movement. So for example, a back squat, it is very rare, if ever, that I would have a client train that movement to all-out failure. Whereas just from like a safety perspective, same thing with a deadlift. We might train to the point where, hey, you feel like maybe you have like 0.5 to 1 RIR reps in reserve left in the tank. But it's pretty rare, if ever, that we would train that movement to all-out failure. Just because the risk to reward of that is so low. Whereas even like, let's say, a hack squat or a leg press, maybe the last week of a mesocycle, we would push that to all-out failure. And this is typically how I program for clients. Now, when I say all-out failure, keep in mind I mean you couldn't do another rep with great form. Not an absolutely sloppy, terrible form grinder that like, okay, maybe like a rounded back deadlift, I could get this rep up. Not what we're talking about here, but another rep with solid form, checking our boxes with both the start point and the end point of each rep, just like I always talk about with my more intermediate to advanced online clients. All these different, the set or this total progression model that we implement with your training that entails like, hey, here are these different checkpoints for every single lift. We wanna make sure we're checking these boxes. This is what, to count this as a full rep, we've hit this start point, we've hit this end point. This is what form needs to look like. Okay, now here's how we quantify this as a rep. So when we can't hit those targets anymore, that's what we're quantifying as failure. So again, um, movements that aren't safe to fail all out on, similarly, we could say like, a barbell bench press, probably unless you have a spotter there, we don't want that want to take that to failure. Whereas a dumbbell bench press, there's really, unless you're gonna straight up drop the dumbbells on yourself, you can really just drop them by your sides. Not a big problem. So some of it's intuitive as well, like how what we can take it to failure. That said, again, um, and then like uh your isolation movements, typically for online clients, I will Start these with a lower RIR, RIR. So let's just think through like a more advanced client. So like right now I'm thinking of my online client, Dave, who's also a coach. He's been training for a long time. Now his progression model is similar to the one that I use for a lot of my more advanced online clients. Week one, most of his compound movements are going to start around three RIR. Most of his isolation movements are going to start around two RIR. Week two, we're going to move his compound movements to two RIR, or again, reps in reserve, reps left in the tank. Um, isolation movements are going to maybe move to one to two RIR. Week three, it's going to be one to two RIR for compounds, one RIR for isolation lifts. In the last two weeks, um, we're going to progress compounds to one RIR and then zero to one RIR. 
And the last two weeks, we're going to keep isolation movements at 0 to 1 RIR. Because the reality is we're not creating nearly as much muscle damage or overall fatigue training isolation movements to failure. And they're really a bit easier typically to undershoot your RIR targets with. So I think that like the risk to, I know that the risk to reward of like a lateral raise to failure there's no big risk of us doing that. We ensure that we fully stimulated the muscle group. It's not going to create so much fatigue that we can't come back and train well the next week. So typically we'll push those a little bit further. Um, but once again, keep in mind that like even in this case, it's typically one to two weeks out of a mesocycle at most where we're taking things to failure. And with your compound lifts, it's only one week. And then that's always followed by a deload. Also keep in mind again, like when we're gauging proximity to failure here, we're considering failure as you can't do another rep with good form, not just like doing anything at all possible, cheating as much as you can to lift up the weight. Now, finally, it really depends on how often you're training. Because when we are creating training programs for online clients, just like Dave, who I was talking about earlier, frequency, volume, and intensity are all kind of on a sliding scale, right? So if your overall volume is lower, which like let's use the example of a client that is training three times a week. And this is like for all my clients that train full body three times a week. RAR targets are always a little bit lower because the reality is no matter what, you can't squeeze that much overall volume or number of hard sets into three days per week training. So therefore, it doesn't make sense for us to like spend a lot of time training with three to four reps left in the tank. So typically the highest I'll go for someone that's training like three times a week or less is going to be two RAR. For those clients, generally I'll use a progression like two RAR, one to two RAR, one RIR or, and then zero to one RIR, or we'll just spend two weeks at one RIR, two weeks at zero to one RIR. Because again, you're only training three days a week. Volume is relatively low. So we need to push the intensity a little bit more just so you can get enough training stimulus to keep achieving your body composition goals. So it very much depends on a lot of different factors, but typically within programming for our online clients, that is how we go about it. All right, guys, and that is all I have for you for today. Do me a huge favor. If you enjoyed the show, take a screenshot of it on your phone right now, post it to Instagram, and tag me. I want to connect with you and thank you for listening to the show, and you're really helping me grow the reach of this show. Once again, thanks for tuning in.